All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family. Thank you for truth that sets us free, Father. Thank you also for giving us the privilege of partaking in Frank Westcott's life here on earth. We're so overjoyed for him, as we know he's with you for all of eternity, pain-free. Thank you for regarding us in such a way that you teach us about what that's like in heaven and why we have so much to rejoice for on his behalf. Thank you. Uh, we pray for those that are still with us that can't be here this evening. Uh, we pray, of course, for those that are still lost, that they might be evangelized before it's too late. Father, we're most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make an evening like this a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Lord is our confidence. Uh, as you'll see this evening, we are starting our way out of the deep dive, out of the mine shaft, so to speak. Not quite as long, obviously. Our last series was 75 parts. This one's uh, going to be much shorter, uh, I guess. Um, from Tuesday's message, one observation that struck me uh, when I was listening to it was the following, that our relationships uh, with our earthly fathers, uh, they have a, it has a lot to say about our relationship with our Father in heaven and vice versa. And what, is, what, I, what do I think the Spirit was getting at with that? In other words, um, fatherhood, you know, as a concept, is a single concept. So fatherhood as a concept, as a single entity, um, really shouldn't be fractured. There should be continuity, regardless of which father we speak. Obviously, we know our Father in Heaven is perfect. Uh, that goes without saying. But the concept of fatherhood should, be, um, should remain pristine. Um, even though earthly fathers, uh, and yours truly, we fail. That's not the point. The point is that we understand why God instituted fatherhood in the first place. What are the key benefits and what is the grace from him that flows through these instruments uh, here on earth? Um, and so a lot of the interplay between our relationship with our Father in heaven and our fathers on earth, there's a, they're one and the same concept, if you would. So a person who has a healthy functioning perspective on fatherhood has it for all fathers in their lives, not just our Father in heaven. A person who has a healthy functioning perspective on fatherhood, this, the concept itself, uh, has it for all fathers in their lives, not just our Father in heaven. Fatherhood is really just an expression and a manifestation of godly love. That's the design behind it. It's supposed to be, and it is when it's right, uh, an expression of godly love. A person without, and forgive me for using this term, I don't want to be offensive, but by now you should know what I mean by it. I don't mean any offense. A person without uh, you know, so-called daddy issues understands this to the degree that they are set free by it. There's a certain freedom in an unfractured viewpoint of fatherhood. Um, such is the tragedy, though, of those who have been damaged by earthly fathers. And as we've discussed in the past, it can be it's most often our fathers in our homes, but it can also be a father that stands behind a pulpit uh, who's not doing his job or maybe shouldn't even have self-promoted himself or, God forbid, herself. Um, but we know that earthly fathers are imperfect, and so uh, some of us have been damaged uh, by our earthly fathers. And what the Spirit's encouraging us, I believe, is not to give up on fatherhood, to maintain a pristine viewpoint or perspective of fatherhood as a general rule. Um, for once a person struggles with, again, we'll call it daddy issues, with daddy issues, it naturally, though dysfunctionally, uh, whether we like to believe it or not, bleeds or extends into our Father in Heaven. And the whole concept 
uh, of fatherhood is marred as a result. Trust issues have a bad habit of infecting all aspects of our relationships, even our one with God. And that's a, a misfortune. It's an unfortunate um, event, really, that uh, earthly fathers can damage us to the degree where even our relationship with our Father in Heaven suffers because our concept of fatherhood is marred. It's been sort of whittled away at, it's been damaged, it's, it's just the way it happens. So trust issues have a bad habit of infecting us, all of our relationships. Um, however, there's some sound perspective from Tuesday up here on the board, uh, a beautiful willingness. And just string this together, there's about three different points here, uh, uh, three bullets in here. If Jesus, our great shepherd, loved the way he did, what kind of love do you think he endows his under-shepherds with? If these men are your examples to, quote, imitate, a la Hebrews 13, 7, don't you think he gives you access to the same love? I've said this before. I've said this about Paul and David and any other shepherd in the Bible uh, other than Jesus. There's nothing special about a shepherd other than he's been given a certain endowment, if you would. He's been given a certain love uh, to lead the flock with. And that is why uh, God, the Holy Spirit, inspired Scripture that says imitate them. So you can see the hierarchy. It's the great shepherd, then his under-shepherds, and then you guys. And it's the same love. That's the point. So if Jesus, our great shepherd, loved the way he did, what kind of love do you think he endows his under-shepherds with if these men are your examples to imitate don't you think he gives you access to the same love? And the answer, of course, is, of course, yes. Paul wrote several times, actually, all of his writings are laced with this, about this God-given love. For example, we saw this on Tuesday as well. Philippians 2, 2 to 3, reads up here on the board, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love. You see it? By being of the same mind, he didn't want to depart. He wanted unity in the faith. Being of the same mind, maintaining the same love. It's not a separate love between you and I. We're in the same sphere of love. God shares this love with us, and therefore we have the same mind, maintaining the same love. So Paul's encouragement is, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty uh, conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. It's impossible to have the kind of love that uh, is laid out in the New Testament if you're selfish. It just doesn't work. So this past week, uh, we spent a fair amount of time on spiritual gifts. Uh, for whatever reason, I think there's probably more than one reason for the Spirit uh, inspiring these messages, but let's dig into what's in front of us. Uh, this past week, we have spent a lot of time on spiritual gifts, and as we've learned, a spiritual gift, when functioning properly, uh, is likewise a beautiful thing because it's an expression of love. We're not all shepherds. Does that mean only shepherds can express love? No, of course not. We all abide in the same sphere of love. And so a spiritual gift, when functioning properly, is likewise a beautiful thing, is an expression of love. A love for other members of the family, the body of Christ. And there's an analogy here that sort of popped into my mind when I was writing this message. You know, back in the day, uh, families were large with a lot of kids. Families were big back in the day. Uh, remember the Old Testament and what it speaks to in terms of the blessings of children, etc. The expectation, though, was that each child, young or old, contributed to the welfare of the family. That's just the way it was. If you were a member of a family, as soon as you were able, <laughs> you were going to be a contributor to the welfare 
of the family. And God is the same way with his family. He empowers each one of us as unique contributors to the family. So we had this perspective from this past week on spiritual gifts. And really, to me, this is the linchpin on the uh, parts of our messages on spiritual gifts. It's this one up here on the board. The gift is to the church, the body of Christ. It is a gift to the bride from her bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Your spiritual gift, or gifts, plural, is not about you. It is about your benefit to the church for others. That is the proper way to think about spiritual gifts. Uh, you love other members in the family. You want to be a contributor to the welfare of the family. And that's about others, not you. And that's what we've been learning. Uh, the other thing we've been learning is to avoid the pitfalls that the Corinthians fell into, that our own country, let's face it, uh, our own, quote, Christianity in this country is plagued with. Uh, and that is that um, people have made something as beautiful of an expression of, of love as spiritual gifts into something selfish. Like everything else we do. <laughs> i got to have the best one. What does that even mean? Well, you tell me then. If that's the playing field, then what's the best one? I can tell you right now, it's not this one. Contrary to some popular belief, it ain't this one. I can tell you that. It, it, it's, a stupid, it's a stupid point. I'm just playing the game, you see. It's a stupid point because one's not better than the other. Go to 1 Corinthians 12.4. 1 Corinthians 12.4. But it's almost like we have to have that thing, don't we? We have to have something to chase as Americans. And so did the Corinthians. It was their culture, you see. It was a very aggressive, uh, financially prosperous culture. And what do, people ha what, do, what, do, what do people do when they're no longer worried about eating and drinking and, and uh, you know, having a, a roof over their head? What do people usually do who have enough wealth just to sort of live without any cares? Now it becomes about power. It's, you have to ask yourself, why do, why do some of the richest people in the world go into politics? Because after they've mastered finances, they, you know, there's only so much money you can spend. What's the only thing left? Power. And people look for ways to stratify. Say, see, I'm better than you. I have more power socially even than you because I have a higher position, even in the church. Ta-da, here I am. But the Bible says something very, very different on the topic of spiritual gifts and why we shouldn't stratify. 1 Corinthians 12.4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit and there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. And that's perspective we need to cling to for the rest of our lives. The only thing you really need in order to benefit the family is a willingness to obey. That's really all it comes down to, is a willingness to obey. You don't even have to strive. I asked a few people this week, and it's always like a little bit like a deer in the headlight. Hey, how would you describe your uh, spiritual gift? And they're kind of like, I don't really know. I know that I, I do this, and I know that I do that, uh, and I know that uh, it benefits the, the congregation or the, the body, the capital C church, and so I guess in that way I'm gifted. And I, I'm convinced that most people don't realize how they're gifted. That's what I believe. I believe I could, I could, I believe I, I'm not going to do it again, but I could go by name, all of you, and, and at least suggest to you one area where I think you're gifted. I'm not going to do it because your heads are still kind of puffed up from last time. <laughs> oh my God, I'm so wonderful. And then you guys will turn to each other, do you see what he said about me? Hmm. Obviously I'm better. <laughs> you can laugh. Sorry. I don't really think you'd do that, by the way. On Tuesday, so the point again is the only thing really you need to have to benefit the family is a willingness to obey. And there's a lot in that, uh, but we'll get to that at some point in the future. On Tuesday, Scott described what I think 
in quotes here, a slice of heaven. He described a fictitious earthly scenario where each member in the body of Christ functioned perfectly in their individual spiritual gift, in their, as, a, as a unique contributor to the body. Imagine that for a moment. No, that doesn't happen. But imagine that for a moment. Um, and it's, because it's a healthy exercise, uh, because it gives us perspective, how wonderful it would be if nobody had any hang-ups about being the best or, you know, there's no jealousy or envy or strife because this one's getting more attention or this one's whatever. None of that existed. People just were really wholly intent on obeying God's will. That's a healthy exercise because it puts us in a good place. And it gives us a good perspective. And as we've been learning for years now, perspective is everything. Uh, anything that improves our perspective is goodness. And so it's good to imagine uh, such things. Uh, let's ponder the godly perspective on spiritual gifts, though. Go to uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 7. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It's an inescapable truth that spiritual gifts are given, and there are a variety of them, for the common good. What about verse 11? But one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Not as we will, as he wills. And that's the work that Paul was doing with the Corinthians. The same work I'm doing with all of you 2,000 years later. This isn't about us or the spiritual gifts that we so desire. Uh, one is not better than the other. Uh, in fact, we're all very important in the body. And God has never made a mistake. Again, the principle on the board. The gift is to the church, the body of Christ. It is a gift to the bride from her bridegroom. Uh, uh, to the bride, from her bridegroom, uh, your spiritual gift or gifts is not about you. It's about your benefit to the church for others. So I just want to have a little sidebar here for some additional perspective. Arguably, and I, I really don't like doing this, but it's the Spirit's um, message, so whatever. Uh, arguably, two of our most brutish Members here at North Christian Church are Anthony. Is Anthony here? Yeah, Anthony and Joey. Uh, each of them runs over 250 pounds, minimally. And if really ticked off, would probably take more than one of us to subdue. And yet, they are shining examples of what it means to follow. Arguably the biggest guys in here and they are shining examples of what it means to follow, to work hard, to show up, to sweat a little. And neither of them, as far as I can see, asks for pats on the back. Neither of them. They are both regulars on church cleanup days and such. And also whenever church leadership asks for folks to help move stuff, etc., they're always there. And here's the interesting thing as well, just an observation you see them going about their business, and they do it almost invisibly, in a sense. Two big guys, and somehow they manage to do it invisibly, quietly, um, because they really don't seek any undue attention drawn to them. They simply help out in time of need. And they are content just serving, utilizing their God-given physical strength, to help out the body of Christ. So they are good examples of one type of spiritual gift functioning to the benefit of the church. Um, do I have a name for that? No. I really don't. I don't really care about names. Remember that old principle from a long time ago? It's not what you call the gift. It's whether you receive the calling, something like that. I think that's how I put it. It's not what you call the gift. It's whether or not you receive the calling. Um, it doesn't matter what you, I mean, my gift happens to have a title, so that doesn't mean it's better. It just has a title. But I don't know what to say about that gift. You could maybe argue it's the gift of helps, the gift of 
brutishness. I don't know. I don't know, whatever. You know what I'm saying? I mean, God equips each one uniquely to do certain things, and that's the point that the Spirit's making here. As 1 Corinthians 12 suggests, we ought to esteem, esteem such spiritual gifts the way I am right now, so that they too may be encouraged. All right, so that's just a little sidebar, certainly worth your consideration as you ponder your own spiritual gifts. Just remember, as the point in the board says, your gift is, you are a gift to the rest of us. That's the point. You're a gift from Jesus to his bride, to the rest of us. And we really, as a group, as well as individuals, need to fully surrender to this fact. And just to nudge us in the right direction, the Spirit has given us the following encouragement. <clears throat> the title's from Tuesday, but I changed a little bit of it. Let it be of God. Please do not persist in self-determination. Don't do what the Corinthians did. Uh, it's not an expression of love. It's a show of selfishness. If you're self-determining um, that you're this or that, and um, you know this or that gift to the church is either too far above you, that happens. Some people are like, I could never do that. Um, or maybe... You think it's too far below you. Oh, I could never do that. Uh, that's garbage. And that's not love. So please do not persist in self-determination. Always remember that spiritual gifts are a function of God's grace. We cannot ever pigeonhole God's will. Remember Isaiah 55, 8. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. It doesn't matter what we think our spiritual gift is. It matters what he thinks our spiritual gift is. And at the end of the day, if it doesn't matter, don't you just want to function in the body the way you're supposed to function? I think so. Our series is titled, The Lord is Our Confidence. If Christ is our confidence, then we are confident in his choices, like spiritual gifts. I think that was the real reason we brought up or he brought up spiritual gifts, is because spiritual gifts are his choice and his choice alone. And there's really Holy Scripture that backs up the fact that there's no other option, that it's very clear who chooses spiritual gifts. I don't care if you go to the so-called best seminary on the planet. It doesn't make you a pastor. It doesn't even make you a prep school teacher. It doesn't mean anything. It means you've got to probably, I guess, maybe a sound education. You might have paid thousands of dollars. You could have just gotten by reading your Bible, but that's a different story. It doesn't make you anything, that's the point. If you go to college for, and get a computer engineering degree, does that, mean I'm gonna, does that mean you have the gift of running the AV room? DJ's a contractor, and look at him back there. No offense. I mean, I have other people that are, that are probably more um, technically qualified than him in the congregation, but I can't put them back there because it's not their gift. I'm not going to thwart God's will either. If he says this is who I want in that post, I have to put them there if I'm listening. So part of the Lord being our confidence is our confidence in his choices, not just who he is, but who he also says what his rights are in our life. He's Lord, not just Savior, remember. Lord means master. It means we're slaves of his. He purchased us after all. So we have to have confidence in his choices. And this becomes now an issue of faith. Of faith. As is always the case, anytime the Lord asks something of us, uh, by faith, he promises his grace. If he says, I want you to do this thing, he proceeds it with grace. If he commands this or that, you can expect his grace to precede it. He's not going to ask you so that you fail. If you don't understand how to succeed, either one, you're misguided, or two, you're missing something, and you need to pray on it. But God never fails us. In other words, if we are to have confidence in him, we must have a little thing called faith. So just reflect with me for a moment. Again, we're, we're sort of 
drawing ourselves out of this deep dive um, on this message series titled, The Lord is Our Confidence. Have you ever stood on a precipice, or let's call it a major fork in the road, and wonder, hmm, I think I'm going to need a little help here, Lord. Anybody? It happens to me, like, all the time. So, you pray for guidance, and you receive it. Because God promises that if we seek, we shall find. We may have to seek a little harder than what some people do. You may actually have to pray. Remember that, like the parable of the, the friend who keeps knocking? Right! What do you want? That's really not how it goes exactly, but you get the point. <laughs> Sometimes you have to pray more than once. So you pray for guidance and you receive it. And all it took was just a little faith for you to get down on your knees before the Lord. And you know, that's what he's looking for. I hope you see it. That's what he's looking for. In our weak moments, that's often all we have to offer. In light of Romans 12, 1-2, it says, Give your entire self to me. I'm a jealous God. I want all of you. I purchased you with my own blood. I want all of you. I deserve you. So let's go. In light of all that, sometimes we're really weak. Fair enough? So listen up. Please be encouraged. Newsflash, you are not perfect. But here's the beauty. God knows this even more than you do. You have no idea how wretched you are. If you were the holy God of the universe, from his perspective, maybe you, you'd be able to see how ridiculous you are. But you don't have that viewpoint, do you? You only have a little taste of it, and you look in the mirror and go, ooh. Imagine what he looks at. You are not perfect. God knows this even more than you do. And yet, his commands remain, don't they? God has made a habit of asking imperfect creatures to perform righteous acts. Seems like a paradox almost, doesn't it? But it's not. Since God isn't a God of confusion, what He wants you to know is something very simple. One, you're imperfect. Two, He can and will use you to His glory. Learn it. You're imperfect. And he can and will still use you to his glory. Again, though, the issue on the table is one of faith. I hear too many of you getting down on yourself to the point where you're crippled. Can't get out of your own way, as some like to say. Here's my advice, and this is from personal experience. Crawl. If you must. Crawl. I can't tell you how many times I have crawled behind this pulpit. I mean, if I do that figure literally, might have something to worry about. I speak figuratively, of course. can't tell you how many times I've crawled behind this pulpit. You never know. You don't know. It doesn't matter. Because it's your job to submit. If God has propped up a crawling on his knees pastor, then so be it. I cannot let my own pride get in the way. And the same goes for all of you. Oh, you're not perfect. You're not living up to mommy and daddy's expectations. Who the hell's mommy and daddy anyways? Bunch of wretches. No offense, moms and dads. But that's the truth. They got their own problems. Some of you are like, yeah, amen. 
The same goes for all of you. Don't let your pride get in the way. It's debilitating. It's crippling. Leave those ungodly expectations behind you. Who knows? Maybe you're there crawling alongside me. Or maybe you're running today and lollygagging tomorrow. Or maybe you've got that look of a deer caught in the headlights. Whatever the case may be, so be it. It doesn't matter. Accept who you are. God makes no mistakes. Some of you relapse. It's like a relapse, almost. Go back to old ways of thinking. Go back to believing the lies from the kingdom of darkness that you're basically a loser, a bum, and sooner or later, you know what? Everybody's going to figure it out. That Your secret's going to get out. You aren't as wonderful as you thought you, as the world thinks you are. Your secret's going to get out. So you better hustle up and cover it up. Keep playing that charade. All of that is a lie. And you know what? It's bondage. Nothing more than bondage. I'm here to tell you, no extra charge, you suck. <laughs> you're imperfect. You're going to fail. You're going to fail everybody else. You're going to fail all of us. That's the way it goes. Accept it. So be it. That's who you are. Drop the charade, too. Yes, there's a little angst or mm, indignation in my voice because I, I just discovered this in myself recently. One of my least favorite things in any human being is pretense. I'd rather you, I'd rather you be a jackass in front of me, to me, if that's who you really are, than pretend you're not. I can't take that other one. And I think that's godly because Jesus didn't like hypocrites either. He didn't necessarily like prostitutes, what they lived for. But he would rather sit with them than the jerks, the Pharisees and the snobs and the pretentious jackasses of the day. Anyways, don't be one of those. Quit the charade. We all know. And that's the beauty of a family like this. We all know. Okay? If you, if you want to carry on some charade out there, you're not strong enough, all right, whatever. You'll get over yourself. But when you're in here, around people that actually love you like Christ loves you, drop the charade because you're in bondage to it. Accept who you are. God makes no mistakes. Depend wholly on the grace of God to sustain you, even if you're crawling towards the finish line. 2 Timothy 4.7, we'll get to that in a moment. Again, be encouraged, my friends, for you are not alone in your struggles. What matters most is your humility. God can always work with humility. He's got something to work with, with humility. Maybe not a whole lot of materials <laughs> that day because you're, I don't know, a hot mess, as some might say. God can always work with humility, just not arrogance. In fact, we know his word clearly states that he gives grace to the humble, not the arrogant. Now, here's the point of reconciliation you may not like how God made you. Who hasn't uh, looked in the mirror and said, man, that could be a little better. Right? <laughs> oh, who, I don't know. Who hasn't like taken some kind of an exam and be like, well, I could have done a little better than that. Why don't you make me a little smarter, Dad? Whatever. You may not like how God made you. You ready? One, two, letter word. So? So what's your point? Isn't that just being a tad arrogant? Isn't it? Just a tad? Hmm. Maybe you don't like your life. Or your family. Or even your friends. Maybe you're just miserable. Maybe you're so miserable you don't even like your country. Like you don't like anybody. You just you, know, you just don't like <laughs> you just don't like anyone. Right? You're in a you're in a like 
mood. Same two two letter words. So. So what's your point? Again, we need to finish this series with a little humility here. Everybody likes the idea of the Lord being their confidence. Everybody loves that. It's like this grandiose sort of, you know, you know, some artist comes up with a paintbrush and it's like, oh, yeah. The Lord is our confidence. Everybody loves that. Everybody loves to the, the wax poetic about you know, the Lord is so grand and Jesus loves me and he's just going to pick me up and all this kind of stuff. But you know what? That's a, that's a terrible way to think about it because the, you have to have humility behind all of that. This isn't just about coming to church and feeling good. It's about coming to church and realizing who you are and, and coming to grips with who you are and, frankly, who you aren't. So be it. Accept who you are. God makes no mistakes. Depend wholly on the grace of God to sustain you, even if you're crawling towards the finish line up here on the board. 2 Timothy 4.7 Paul said at the end of it, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. He said, I'm being poured out here. I'm just spent. Remember Spendo? I'm spent. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept. There were times, presumably, that he really literally had to crawl. Because, you know, he was like almost stoned to death. And when you have a cracked face, and your bones might be broken, and your back is beat up, and your legs are sore because people threw literally rocks at you, boulders maybe, I'm going to say he probably really did have to crawl at some point and swim for his life and all this kind of stuff. Imagine if he threw in the towel. What if he bought the bait, the lie? See, this is why you shouldn't be doing this, Paul. You're a smart guy. You could be out there making a lot of money for yourself. You'd be doing a lot of stuff for yourself. You could have you know, all the, the approbation from society because you, know, you, you studied under the greats and all this kind of stuff. You'd have it made. That's the lie. Some of you are fighting the same battle at a very small scale. Think there's something wrong because you're having to crawl. There's nothing wrong. This is a bloodbath that we're in. Paul's great victory wasn't in all his accomplishments. He admitted that he wasn't even under his own power, that he performed honorably to the glory of God. Go to 1 Corinthians 15, 10. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. The reason why some of you are still miserable is because you have, you're still buying the lie that you think you're great. <laughs> the only thing that's good about you is that Christ. You understand? And Christ was ultimately humble. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. By, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I. This is Paul's humility on full display. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. That's what humility looks like. He said, I accomplished a lot, but at the end of the day I know that it really wasn't me, it was the grace of God. And who, who could say more than Paul um, that his expectations of his life, you know, before Damascus hadn't been met? Who could say, who has a, who has a, 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 a bigger jerk to their life than Paul? Paul knew then what the Spirit's trying to teach us all now, that his confidence in the Lord's good work through him as a vessel of mercy existed by the grace of God alone. Did he have to, to use a military term, did he have to report for duty? Indeed. He had a purpose for living, a responsibility even to his Redeemer. 
But that's all humility looks like. Even if we have to crawl to morning formation, that is our goal. We need to show up, be ready to serve. We have to at least make roll call. You can't be AWOL, in other words, absent without leave. We've got to show up. We have to be ready to serve. Now, here's what the Spirit's getting at. Listen, please. Your flesh and the kingdom of darkness are going to lie to you, whispering in your ear, reminding you of how big of a screw-up you are, how incapable you are, how you're never going to be doing this, how you're going to fail at that. Just look at you. You can't even get out of bed in the morning. You're always depressed. You're always this. You're always... And it just lies to you. So your flesh and the kingdom of darkness are going to lie to you, reminding you how big of a screw-up you are. And you know what? You are. You are. You screwed up yesterday. You probably screwed up today. You're going to screw up tomorrow. So what are they telling? They're telling you. So you're going to be affected by someone telling you what you already know about yourself? Unless you're a pretentious ass. Unless you're that person who's still living by mommy and daddy's expectations. You know, the ones you adopted when you were like, you know, a 10-year-old boy or girl, that type of stuff. Unless that's you, you're set free. You're like, Tell me something I don't know. If you're wounded in any way by these lies, you have still have a problem. You're still in bondage. Which really, in so many words, is arrogance. You still think there's something special about you. And you know, hopefully you know what I mean by that. Knowing your failures, listen, knowing your failures and living in them are two different things, according to the Word of God. Knowing them and living in them are two different things. Just because you know you fail doesn't mean you have to live like a loser, so to speak. Because what is, what is the source of our victory? Our faith. You don't have to live the life of a loser just because you fail. You're not a failure just because you fail. That shouldn't define you. That's what the kingdom of darkness wants you to believe. Because you fail regularly, you're a failure. So just keep up the charade. That's bondage. Knowing your failures and living in them are two different things according to the word of God. While we can learn from our mistakes, we must remember that God knew about all of them before we were even born. And you know what? He still chose to create you and then save you. These are the things that grant us hope and confidence in his workmanship. Up here on the board, Ephesians 2.10, for we are what? His workmanship. We are his workmanship, not our own, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Yeah. God has made divine choices regarding your life. He's also given you faith to sustain you up here on the board. Romans 12, 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself. Drop the charade, drop the pretension, drop the arrogance, all that stuff. Don't do that because that's bondage. Not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And as we studied this past week, faith to accompany your spiritual gift so that you have confidence in the Lord's choices. And it doesn't have to be spiritual gifts, anything in your life, even your family, where he placed you, the country you live, all of it. The idea is to gain your confidence from his choices. The other key verse from this passage, we read the whole of it, Romans 12, 6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. I'm just going to give you a little bit more uh, insight. We have the word here, 
uh, analogia. Obviously, it's the English word analogy comes from it. That's proportional in the Greek, analogia, where we get the English word analogy. It means analogous reasoning, moving from one point of a comparison up to the other. I'm going to give you a little bit more insight into this <clears throat> up here on the board on this Greek word proportion. In the classical Greek, this word was used as a mathematical term. Vincent, who quotes Plato, and he's just, I'm not saying Plato was a spiritual giant, I'm saying they understood the language of the day. The fairest bond is that which most completely fuses and is fused into the things which are bound. And proportion, analogia, is the best adapted to affect the fusion. Probably just confused you more, didn't I? You guys are like, what, seriously? <laughs> I'm sorry. I probably did, huh? Again, do I have this back? Yes. Romans 12, 6. You know what proportions are, right? Proportionality. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. Let me put it this way. God sets proportions. Okay? God says that um, if I need this part of the body of Christ to function this way, then I'm going to give so many people this kind of faith. And it's going to be proportionate to what I want the output to be. Okay? That's sort of a lay way of saying it. And it's just, it is a mathematical term. But this proportionality, proportionality, this is the key point, the proportionality, the fact that God has everything perfectly harmonized is important to the church. He doesn't give us all the same measure of faith, in other words. It's proportionate. So proportionality is important to the church. Why? Because it, ready? It guarantees a divinely balanced body. I mean, he's not, let's put it this way. He's not going to put Andre the Giant's head on my body. I hope not. When I was a kid, I thought it might be the case. I thought he might have got his front, two front teeth, actually. Ah, oh, why are you laughing? You're making me insecure. <laughs> Just kidding. He's not going to put, do you get the point? Everything's in proportion. We want a, a, a well-balanced body, not a weeble. A well-proportioned body. It's important. Let me give you an analogy. Have you ever been on a canoe? Honestly, it's harrowing. If you're not a canoe person, it's harrowing the first time you jump in there with others especially. You spend half of your time trying not to capsize. <laughs> it's true. Dangerous. The conversation is dominated by, whoa, whoa, lean to the other side. Like panic-stricken language. And God forbid someone has the gumption to stand up in that thing. The moral of the story, balance is good. Balance is good. If you're not where you're supposed to be in the canoe, we're going over. This is what we are learning regarding spiritual gifts and the types of attitudes and activities that can capsize our little canoe. Everyone must remain seated in their assigned seat. Analogy number two. In the uh, Air Force, in the United States Air Force, there's a job called a loadmaster. The job requires very careful placement of cargo on planes. You know, like, not just the humans, but like, maybe tanks, pallets of food and supplies, etc. So some pretty heavy stuff. Well, imagine if the loadmaster decides the tank looks better, kitty corner because he's having a queer eye for the straight guy moment. that plane may well crash because someone's artistic sensibilities were offended by the right choice of placement. You get the point. Maybe you don't want to be a, uh, the bowels of the, of the body of Christ. Maybe you don't want to be a sphincter. Maybe you don't want to be a tear duct or 
an oil duct or a hair follicle or whatever. You know, all the stuff that no one likes to talk about. Maybe you don't want to be that stuff. So, do you know how obnoxious that is? Get in your seat. You're tipping the canoe over. Get back to where you're supposed to be. You get the point. Go to Ephesians 4.1. Paul helps us with this. For the record, I've never watched that show. Ever. And now I can't. Ephesians 4.1 Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another. How? In love. All of this is held together. This is the tie that binds. We're going to close with that. Might probably run out of time. but Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us grace was given, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Go to verse 15 now. Verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part. Do you see that? The proper working of each individual part, that means each person has to be in their seat, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Do you know that, do you know in your heart that Jesus loves you? Are you sure? Are you confident? Do you have the faith that accompanies your confidence? Or is your confidence weak, fragile, fractured? If this describes you, please don't be discouraged. Just keep on pressing on. Here's what I have in my notes. Seek love for love's sake. And that's something to chew on over the weekend. Seek love for love's sake. When you find it, you will have your confidence. When you find it, you will have your confidence. If we truly wish to understand what the Spirit's been teaching us as of late with respect to the Lord is our confidence, we must have confidence minimally in Christ's love for us. Minimally in Christ's love for us. Now, I've got six minutes left. I want to do a little bit more ascending here um, out of this deep dive. I want to begin wrapping this up. A few points of review. One freedom principle worth dwelling on up here on the board is this. This came up a couple of times in the last couple of messages. If the Lord is your confidence, then you are not. That may sound almost, I don't know, silly to say. But some of you could learn a lot from that. If the Lord is your confidence, then you are not. Our freedom in Christ, experientially speaking, depends upon our understanding this very point. The practical side of this point is probably our most recurring principle in this series up here on the board. On the topic of Christian love, the hallmark of Christ-like love is our selfishness. In every way, selflessness, in every way, this remains true. In every interaction, it is the driving force. It lives for others. That's what Christian love should look like. The hallmark of it is selflessness. This is the very same thing that Paul expounded upon so elegantly in 1 Corinthians 13, his chapter regarding love, which ends in this verse up here on the board, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. You have to at least be confident in his love. So that puts a wrinkle on things. It would be nice just to be able to say, okay, I want to know, or I want to understand his love. 
as we noted way back now with King David, the more we love the Lord, the greater our confidence in Him. So we know the string of pearls is this way. But the key to finding this love is in seeking knowledge. And so that's another principle from of old up here on the board. We love because we know. 1 John 4, 16-19. We want to be confident in His love. We want to have the Lord as our confidence. Then we have to know Him. Our confidence comes from our knowledge of the Holy One. Go to 1 John 4.16. 1 John 4.16. We'll see what we can do here. Our confidence comes from our knowledge of the Holy One. You don't just by osmosis or by being impressed with a pastor or your friends or your family members. Oh, well, they're so confident in the Lord. I'm just going to like grab hold of their confidence. That never works. That never works. You have to read your Bible. There is no substitute. 1 John 4.16 Because your Bible says stuff like this. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. What's the first statement there? We have come to know. Well, how do they, get, how do they believe? Because they came to know. <laughs> we came to know and have believed. Well, what preceded believing? Knowing. There you go. You can't just listen to me and say Jesus loves you. I mean, it's true, and it might be encouraging, but the fact of the matter is you have to get it supernaturally from the Word of God, which means you have to read your Bible. We have come to know and have believed the, have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfect or uh, matured in love. We love because he first loved us. So it's almost reciprocal, but the better way to think about that is that we enter into the sphere of love. Again, the point on the board, we love because we know. And the recurring principle up here on the board has been the hallmark of Christ-like love is selflessness. In every way, this remains true. In every interaction, it is the driving force. It lives for others. Got a couple of minutes. Let me give you one more subtle corollary. Again, we're coming rapidly out of this mind shaft now. Living for others, selflessness in view. Living for others doesn't mean doing the best you can for them. From your own perspective, it means doing the best you can for them while considering their perspective. We had some work on that, good labor on that in the past, uh, maybe a few lessons back. This requires discipline, integrity, and humility. We even covered that. 1 Corinthians 8, 9 to 13, 9, 19 to 23, Matthew 5, 38 to 48. Now here's an excerpt from those scriptural references to tie this back to our series. Up here on the board, I'll give you the Amplified Classic, 1 Corinthians 13, 2, Part B. If I have sufficient faith so that I can move mountains, but I have not love, God's love in me, I am nothing, a useless nobody. Love is the tie that binds all of it together. To know is to love, and vice versa. Knowledge is the imperative, the precursor to love even. We can't love others, not even God, if we don't know them. If we ought to heed wisdom herself, and this is where I'll end because we're out of time. If we ought to heed wisdom herself, here's our recurring principle. You ready? And I had some scripture to back up the second point. But here's the two points that have been coming up time and again. The first one, in just about every lesson, every series nowadays, read your Bible. If you're not doing it, I, don't, I really don't know what to tell you. Uh, and fear God. At the end of the day, that's what wisdom teaches us. Remember when we read Proverbs 1, 2, and 3? What was it all about? Fear the Lord. It literally is the basis of all wisdom. So these two things really are the imperatives. If you're lacking confidence in the Lord, that's my advice. Look at that. Five words. Nice and simple. Five words. Life's not that complicated. 
Once you drop your arrogance, once you drop your pretense, once you drop all your childhood expectations, all that garbage, once you get rid of all that stuff, you read your Bible, you fear God, life gets a lot easier. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege to study your word, to be set free. We just ask for your guidance as we take these things back home to our families and then out to a world that's just decaying. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.